When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. And want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debates, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you are from, folks, we really do hope you feel welcome. We're glad you're here. And also want to let you know, folks, we are thrilled for an upcoming debate as Friend Samuel Nassan and other friend of the channel, Matt Dillahunty, will be on debating next month on whether or not Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So that is one you don't want to miss, folks. So hit that subscribe button and that little notification bell to be sure you don't miss it, as it's going to be a good one. And also, folks, really excited, want to remind you, as we have these debates, our goal is to both create a neutral platform, but also we want to encourage you to focus on kind of narrowing in your critiques on the arguments rather than the people. We really do appreciate our guests. We're super thankful that they're with us today. And so please do keep your criticisms aimed at the arguments rather than at the person. And so with that, what we're going to do is introduce our guests and give them a chance. I want to let you know, folks, their links are in the description right now at the very top of the description. So if you want to hear more from our guests during this debate, they're waiting for you right now. You can click on those links in the description box below. So we are thrilled to have our guests, though, and so we want to say thanks so much. We'll start with Doug and just say, Doug, thanks so much. It's a true pleasure to have you back. And if you'd be willing to share what people can expect to find at your links, we're thrilled to have you here. Okay, well, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, basically, if you go to DougWills.com, which is my blog, Blog and May Blog, uh, on the landing page there, you can find a a link or a connection to pretty much everything that I'm involved with. So on the front page of uh, Blog and May Blog, which is DougWills.com, you can connect to New St. Andrews College or Logos School, uh, Christchurch, the whole shoot match. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Doug. We're thrilled to have you back. And Ben, glad to have you back as well. What can people expect to find at your link in the description? Yeah, so uh, they can uh, they can find uh, well, there's a link to my Twitter, and they can find uh, the YouTube channel and podcast that I host, uh, which is called uh, "Give Them an Argument," and pretty much everything else, the columns I write for Jacobin, and all of that, uh, you can find at BenBurgess.com. Absolutely. Well, thanks, both gentlemen. This is a, a true pleasure. So, what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into it, folks. And we we're going to we're going to do basically a, a pretty you could say hybrid format where we do have openings at the start, which would be about 12 minutes, and then we'll have that open discussion portion followed by Q and A. So, 
Ben is actually going to start us off with the openings. And so, Ben, I've got the timer set for you. It's ready to go. And so, on your first word, I'll start it. Thanks so much. And the floor is yours. All right. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you, Pastor Douglas, for, uh, for doing this. Uh, before I start with the main line of argument, I want to clear up one possible source of confusion. I'm an atheist, obviously, and I'm here to defend the moral honor of atheism. But what I'm not is an anti-theist. I'm not here to besmirch the moral honor of theism. In fact, even though I'm an atheist and more than enough of a philosophy nerd to thoroughly enjoy arguing about topics like theism versus atheism, uh, in the past, I've largely avoided this topic in public debates like this for the simple reason that I spend most of my time arguing about politics, and I don't want to give anyone who knows me from those contexts the impression that there's an anti-theistic component to what I advocate politically. There isn't. While I'm an atheist, and I clearly don't think that my being an atheist puts me at any sort of disadvantage in talking about morality, which is what we'll be discussing tonight, I deeply admire the Christian left, figures like Tony Benn or Cornell West or just to pick a third progressive Christian at random, my wife, Jennifer Burgess. Uh, so that's not the point, right? I think that like people like Robert E. Lee, who fought for what I regard as the most evil cause in human history was a Christian, but so is John Brown. So it's clearly possible to be on the right side of history and disagree with me about metaphysics. All I need from anyone politically is that they don't have any interest in trying to impose their religious beliefs on others. All right. That extended bit of throat clearing out of the way, let's get to the main event. I became interested in doing this debate because I have read and watched uh, Pastor Douglas say that without theism, it's impossible to have what he will call authoritative morality as opposed to just statements of preference. Sometimes this seems to be a claim about moral motivation that without a divine enforcer to reward or punish people, they don't have a reason to act morally. To the extent that this is the claim, I think that's wrong in multiple very deep ways, and I'm sure we'll get to that later on. But in the limited time I have for this opening statement, I wanna focus on what I think is the main claim being made. So Pastor Douglas is a presuppositionalist, meaning he thinks it's impossible for theists and atheists to debate on neutral ground. You have to assume something, to about the existence or non-existence of God to get started. On the face of it, you'd think that this would make debates like this one impossible. The reason it doesn't is that as any good philosopher or logician should be able to tell you, one of the best ways to argue against any position is to assume its presuppositions for the sake of argument and derive unsavory conclusions from them that don't follow from your view. That I, this, I take it, is what uh, Pastor Douglas is doing when he criticizes atheists as being unable to make sense of the idea of authoritative morality, uh, by which he usually seems to mean, and I'm sure we'll get into this you know, later, uh, objective morality. And while I do think it's entirely possible to have an argument between atheists and atheists on neutral ground, uh, certainly on many subjects, that way of framing it is one that I'm perfectly happy to use as far as we conduct tonight's debate. And I wanna make two very simple points here. These are gonna be my two big claims. The first is that on the presupposition that there is no God, there are plenty of philosophical options for making sense of the idea that morality is not relative to time, place, or culture or relative to individual preferences, but that right things would be right even if no one ever knew that they were right and wrong things would be wrong even if no one ever knew that they would be wrong. 
So, for example, you could be an atheist utilitarian and believe that whatever maximizes well-being and minimizes suffering is objectively right, no matter who does or doesn't think it's right. You could be an atheist Kantian and believe that treating other people as mere means to your ends is objectively morally wrong, no matter who does or doesn't think it's morally wrong. You could be an atheist Rawlsian and believe that whatever society perfectly rational people would decide if they had to do, they had to live in it, but they didn't know whether they were going to be born black or white, male or female, rich or poor, is objectively a just society, even if no one considers it just. So that's the first point. Now, maybe you don't find any of these options plausible. Maybe you think, as many philosophers, including some atheist ones have, that there's a deep philosophical problem with making sense of the idea of objective morality. Of what would that even mean for morality to be objective? Well, if you think so, that brings us to the second point, which is this one. If it's a big philosophical problem, how to make sense of objective morality, accepting for the sake of argument, the presupposition of theism does literally nothing to solve that problem. It doesn't help in any way. The view that it would help uh, at least its purest form, is called divine command ethics. The divine command ethicist says that morality isn't about what the utilitarian thinks it's about, you know, maximizing well-being and minimizing suffering. It's not about not treating people as mere means like the Kantian thinks. It's not about what the Rawlsian thinks it's about. It's about doing whatever God commands. And there's a very simple and totally unsolvable problem with this moral framework, one that has been well-known uh, philosophically for thousands of years, and one which has convinced even many thoughtful Christian philosophers who know about it that divine command ethics must be the wrong way to think about morality. Now, I could see somebody watching this and say, how can you be a Christian and not be a divine command ethicist? We'll get to that. Uh, but the, let's, let's talk about the argument itself. It's called the Euthyphro objection. Uh, Euthyphro, I, I never trust my Greek pronunciation, uh, which uh, to divine command ethics, and it comes from a dialogue written by Plato uh, a little over 23 centuries ago. In the dialogue, Socrates is arguing with a character named Euthyphro um, about whether holiness can be defined as that which the gods love. Socrates asks him uh, whether uh, the gods love what they love because it is holy or whether the holy is holy because gods love it because the gods love it. Translating Socrates' challenge into the terms of tonight's debate, the question is whether what God commands us to do is morally good because God commands it, or uh, whether, uh, whether God commands it because it's good. So start with the second option. If you say that God commands it because it's morally good, then you've just stepped out of divine command ethics. You've just accepted that it's good for some reason other than that God commands it. If, on the other hand, it's morally good because God commands it, then you have this problem. If God hypothetically had commanded you, thou shalt kill whosoever shall annoy you and rape whosoever you shall lust after, and thou shalt not under any circumstances be kind or charitable or help little ladies cross the street, then you would have to say that murder or rape would be good and charity and kindness and helping little old ladies cross the street would be morally bad. That's absurd. And note that it's absurd in exactly the same way that moral relativism is absurd. It's absurd in exactly the same way that it would be absurd to say that if the Nazis had won World War II and killed everyone who disagreed with their actions or brainwashed everybody who was left to think that exterminating Jews was morally right, then it would follow that from that the exterminating Jews would be morally right. 
if you think that's absurd, in exactly the same way you should think that embracing, that thinking that murder and rape were morally right if they'd been commanded by God would be morally good. In fact, the more we think about this objection, the more that we can see that divine command ethics is a form of relativism. It says that morality is relative to God's arbitrary preferences. And a quick word to any uh, Christian viewers who may be encountering this argument for the first time, if what you're thinking right now is, oh, but God wouldn't command these terrible things because those things are bad and God is good, you've just rejected divine command ethics. If God wouldn't command them because they're morally bad, then their moral badness must be logically independent of God's commands. This is why philosophically sophisticated Christians understand that to make sense of the idea that God's commands are objectively good, they have to give up divine command ethics and say that God commands good things because they're good, not the other way around. They could still say that reading the Bible or praying for guidance is a good way to find out what's good and bad, because God, on their view, is all-knowing, and so, of course, he would know all the moral facts as well as all the other kinds of facts. But whatever you think of that claim, it's a completely different claim than saying that God's will is what makes morally good things morally good and morally bad things morally bad, which I think is what um, Pastor Douglas is going to need to say in order to make sense of the idea that it's impossible to make sense of objective morality on the presupposition of atheism. Now, some people who want to hold on to divine command ethics think that it somehow helps to start talking about God's, how God's commands aren't arbitrary because they flow from God's nature. Trust me, that won't help. The reason it won't help is because it leads to the exact same problem again. It just pushes it one link up the chain. So the question now, if God's nature is kind and merciful uh, and steadfast, uh, is, okay, what if God's nature had been uh, cruel and capricious and unforgiving? Uh, would that therefore be a morally good nature? In other words, is what makes kindness and uh, steadfastness and forgiveness good the fact that that happens to be God's nature or is that God's nature because God is a morally good being? It's exactly the same problem. Now, uh, I think we could, we could follow this, this thread of argument up a lot more. I'm sure that we will. We get to the open dialogue portion of the evening. I also really hope when we get to the open dialogue, we talk about this business about moral motivation, because again, sometimes it seems to me that that is what Pastor Douglas seems to we're going to be talking about. Uh, when he, he talk, uses this phrase, uh, authoritative morality. Uh, but if we don't get to those two subjects, uh, somebody please ask about them in the Q&A, because I really want to talk about both. Uh, but right now, I've probably been going on long enough for uh, the opening statement. So, Pastor Douglas, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. We'll kick it over. floor is all yours, Doug. All right. Thanks very much. Um, I want to begin with my gratitude. I want to thank the host of this debate, the good folks of Modern Day Debate, in a time when many are clamoring for uh, actual intellectual interaction about things that actually matter, to have them banned and chased off the premises. We need to have more exchanges like this, not fewer. So I'm very, very grateful. I'm also grateful to Ben Burgess for agreeing to have this discussion. I noticed that he naturally received some pressure online encouraging him to pull his skirts away from me with a sneer 
which he resisted. And uh, straight up the middle, I'm very grateful for that. I really do appreciate it. Um, living in cancel culture the way we do, uh, we just have to resist every form of shouting people down. We need to hear people out. So to the question, is atheism immoral? As the Christian in this debate, I naturally have the affirmative. And so I, I want to hasten to clarify what form of this I would want to defend and what form of it I would not defend. All right, so that question, is atheism immoral, can be construed in, in different ways. And I am uh, more than eager to defend one form of it and not at all eager to, deform, to, uh, to, to defend forms of it that I would regard as silly or inconsequential. Of course... So, so a few qualifiers on what I do not mean. Given, of course, as a Christian, given that God exists, to deny that he does would be a sin, and hence an immoral position, right? So if it's true that God exists and we owe everything to him and he loves us and we're saying, I don't think you're there, uh, of course that's a sin, uh, and, and hence immoral. But I'm not taking our question in that sense, I'm, um, because that's at one level that would be like asking, is atheism atheistic? Right. Um, that's it, it'd be tautological. It, it'd be a debate about nothing. So I don't take the question uh, in that way. Rather, I believe the question has to do with whether atheism is a greenhouse that grows levels of accepted immorality that surpass the levels that the human race has always been able to produce. So. Whatever, wherever the human race goes, you're going to find all kinds of gaudy uh, uh, misbehavior. And it's, you're going to find a sort of baseline of human uh, sinfulness, human w wickedness, human iniquity. And you're going to find it among Buddhists and among Hindus and among Muslims and among Christians. Um, every, uh, every culture under the sun, including the Christian ones, has had, uh, has had to grapple with and deal with the fact of human frailty, human sinfulness, uh, human problems. So I, I'm taking this as, is uh, atheism something that takes it to the next level? It, you know, um, I, can't, I can't argue that atheism is immoral because uh, atheists, atheists have been known to sin uh, because everybody does, right? That's a, um, that wouldn't prove anything. So, um, is atheism, is atheism a greenhouse that grows, uh, grows these things to a level uh, that is out of the ordinary? If sins were pumpkins, does atheism produce prize winners for the state fair? Uh, you know, are, does atheism produce really big pumpkins? And I believe, actually, the answer to that question is yes. But I think you have to zoom out and look at the big picture. Uh, and that leads to the next uh, qualifier. I'm not maintaining, for example, that if I lived next door to Ben and my wife and I were going on vacation, that his atheism would somehow require him, as soon as we disappeared around the corner, to run over and burn down my house. Uh, I don't believe that that is what we're discussing. I don't think that, I don't believe that. No, I'm sure we'd get along fine and that he would be happy to take in our mail and so on. And uh, I can... I can also, in my thought experiment, uh, come up with certain Christians that I wouldn't want to ask to take in my mail, <laughs> that, that, I, that I wouldn't get along with as, as well. So 
um, in certain respects, when, if we're talking about public morality or how you behave in your interactions with other people, we also have to reckon with the bell curve, which is the, um, uh, which is the, you know, the fact if I say something like men are taller than women, um, I'm dealing with two bell curves and I, I can easily produce certain women who are taller than certain men. And thus, uh, my generalization is falsified, but it's not really falsified because it was a generalization. So I believe that atheistic cultures, atheistic societies do get to hellish levels of immorality, but I don't believe that that's the case for individual atheists necessarily at all. So I'm not maintaining that. So in what sense uh, would I want to argue that atheism is immoral? There are three things that I would like to mention, and to anticipate um, uh, Ben's uh, re reference to motivation is my third one. So uh, there's two two things that I want to uh, tag first as more important, but motivation is my third point, and it I think is a an important one, but just not the most important one. The first thing I want to mention is that uh, we have a need for God in order to have a fixed definition of morality, a fixed definition of morality. If there is no God, and Darwin is right, then morality must evolve right along with us. There were things that we used to be able to do back when we were eels. There are things we used to be able to do when we were crustaceans. There were things that we could do that we can't do now because the species evolves and the morality the accepted canons of behavior evolved right along with us. What we currently call moral, and I put that in scare quotes, what we currently call moral is, is no more fixed than the fins that we used to have or the antenna that we will have someday. The, the fins that we used to have are all gone now, and our morality that we had back then is gone also. And the morality that we currently have is going to be gone when we get to the antenna stage. So the need for a shared definition of morality is crucial in a debate like this, because what will happen at some point if I point to abortion or to same-sex mirage or to statist thieveries, you know, and I say, well, of course, of course, atheism produces, uh, produces um, pro-abortion uh, legislation and produces um, uh, openness to any kind of marriage you want to have, and it produces, you know, I, I'm sure I could develop my list or extend my list of immoral offenses, and if I get it long enough, uh, then Ben's going to interrupt and say something like, those things aren't immoral. What, what, what are you talking about? Well, clearly, what I'm talking about at that point is we have different definitions of morality. Um, so our, our understanding of morality might overlap somewhat, but you, you have to start with definitions. And I think definitions come back to, on things like morality, come back to the two great playground questions of um, uh, why and who says, right? Why and who says. So next, the second thing that I want to get to is uh, the need for a rationale. So the first the first is the definition. How do we define what is moral and immoral? The second is the need for a rationale for morality. And in this case, 
um, for any kind of morality at all, uh, whether it's Ben's or mine's or somebody else. Um, by this, I mean any system that says to an individual, you ought to do thus and such. If there's a thou shalt not, if uh, you're out of line for doing this, you ought to have done otherwise. If a system comes from outside the individual and says you ought to do this, then somebody's going to say, why? Um, who says? Why and who says? Where does that ought come from? Where does that ought come from? Where do we get obligation? Where, uh, what does what produces obligation? Moral and, and specifically moral obligation. What is what is its what is its basis? So let us postulate that Ben and I have a friend in common. Okay, we have a friend in common, and he is a man who's a dedicated atheist. He's on his deathbed, and Ben and I arrive at the same time to say our fare farewells to him. This friend takes the opportunity to tell the two of us that he lived as he pleased, and that speaking quite frankly now, since he's going to die later that day, he has gotten away with a bunch of stuff. Let's say that he then mentions a line of atrocities that he's committed, and that Ben and I both are both appalled by the things he's done. All right? So Ben and I don't have any difference at all about our disapproval of what this guy's um, behavior has been. We both disapprove of it. The issue of the rationale comes in when uh, our friend passes away and Ben and I are standing out on his front lawn uh, about to go our, our respective ways and we get to talking about why we disapprove. Okay, why do we disapprove? What is, why was this guy wrong? All right, so, so the issue is not whether um, it's possible, and this is something that Ben alluded to in his opening statement. The issue is not whether it's possible for this friend to have been a Kantian or to have been a utilitarian. That's true. He could have been those things, uh, just as Ben can be those things. But as it turned out, as it happened, what he actually was, was a nihilist. What he actually was, was someone who said, I'm going to do absolutely whatever I want to. Uh, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. You know, I'm going to, and I'm going to do as I please. My question is not whether Ben makes room for the Kantian and utilitarian and other forms of atheism that hold to an objective morality. My question is whether he has room for the nihilist, the nihilist who lives that way. Is that consistent also? Okay. Now, uh, then that leads to the third thing. Uh, the, and the third thing has to do with the motivation. So the first is, how do we define morality? And, and I think we can realize that on a number of fundamental issues, the Christian and the atheist would define it very, very differently. The second thing is how, if we have an area of shared agreement on uh, these things our deceased friend did that we both disapprove of, what is our rationale for disapproving of it? Um, and can we say that this uh, selfish man who just passed away uh, was in any way wrong? Uh, wh who did he sin against? Who did he, what did he violate? He did get away with it. He got clean away with it. But then third is uh, motivation for living morally. Uh, and this is reflected a little bit in my scenario of the, of the man on the deathbed. Um, 
the human race is a piece of work. We do all kinds of awful things to one another. And because we do awful things to one another, we need encouragement. We need help. We need to, we need to realize that we are not at the, the fine beings that we like to flatter ourselves that we are. And one of the things that is a motivating uh, factor is the reality of justice, not justice as an abstraction, but justice as in judgment coming. So when uh, a person uh, lives his life in the, in the fear of God, not, not fear in the sense of scared, but fear in the sense of uh, uh, an awesome respect for who God is, and the realization that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of God, and we're going to answer for how we lived. We're going to, this is not a, this is a graded course. Now, oftentimes, anybody who wants to tell you that students behave in exactly the same way in pass-fail courses that they do in graded courses hasn't been teaching very long. People behave differently. And if you convince the population, if you convince the entire population that there is no accountability, there are no final grades, there is no day of judgment, there are many people who have lived lives of unbridled selfishness and who got clean away with it. If you convince them that that's the way it is, there will be a number of people who will aspire to that. And when they aspire to that, um, the atheist is not in a position to say, you're making a wrong choice. Says oh, who? One Why is that left. a wrong choice? All right, that, I'm, I'm good there. Thank you very much. We'll jump into the open conversation. Want to let you know, folks, we are on podcast. If you didn't know, we're really excited about it. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback. And so pull out your favorite podcast app and see if you can find us. And also want to let you know, if you're listening via podcast right now, our guests are linked in the description of the podcast as well. And so you can hear plenty more from our guests by clicking on those links in the description. And with that, We'll kick it over to the open discussion portion. And so thanks, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, they, so one of the first claims was that um, there's going to be a certain amount of immorality in, uh, in, any, uh, in any human society, uh, but that you're, going to, uh, that you're going to get more immorality uh, given, uh, given widespread atheism. Now, that's an empirical claim, so... Uh, that's actually testable. We don't just have to speculate about it. Uh, and granted, uh, the the experiments that we have are not, you know, laboratory, you know, pristine, because uh, you know, because there are other factors that confound it. But it is striking that they don't seem to bear out uh, what Pastor Douglas is uh, is predicting here. That so, if you look at the uh, the countries in the world with the uh, the highest rate of uh, of your religion, uh, you'll uh, you'll see places. Uh, you know, like Sweden and Denmark, uh, that uh, that also have you know much lower uh, rates of things like murder and rape uh, than the United States, which is uh, one of the most religious countries uh, in the first world. Of course, as I said, that's so why, not. A, so why'd you leave out? Why'd you leave out the Soviet Union? Well, we can talk about the Soviet Union too, but they. Uh, but first, let's talk about Sweden and Denmark, uh, and of course, um, I think that. 
this is not a pristine laboratory experiment because they have because uh, they have a lot more irreligion than we do, but they also have more of what you referred to earlier as uh, statist thievery, which I take it means uh, redistributive taxation, welfare state stuff like that. Uh, all, and, that all that all that bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I I, I tend to. Uh, I, you know, I won't blame your Christianity for your having that opinion. There is a long and honorable list of uh, of Christians who disagree with you. But uh, and uh, but be, so at the very least, we can say that uh, if it is a greenhouse, you know, if it is a greenhouse of immorality, I don't think that there's any evidence that it is. But if it is a greenhouse uh, of uh, of immorality, uh, then at least the diversion of that greenhouse that's uh, that's combined. Uh, with lots of status thievery and social welfare, seems to be one that grows much smaller pumpkins uh, than uh, than we get uh, in countries like well, the United States. And I'd also point out, of course, that if, if we're going to talk about the state fair winners, uh, I mean, this is, you know, obviously the list of uh, of state of religious immoral, you know, uh, winners at the state fair of immorality is very long and presumably doesn't need to be recited here. So so let me let me start with that and then work back to, uh, sure. to Denmark and Sweden and so on. Um, let, let's take uh, a, a famous Christian atrocity that really was an atrocity, uh, uh, the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, take something like the Spanish Inquisition, which was horrible, offensive to God, bad, wicked. You know, I'll call it every name you want me to call it. Uh, but the Spanish Inquisition, over the course of its history, was responsible for about 2,000 executions, about 2,000 executions. That was Stalin on a slow afternoon, okay? So basically, when we're, when we're looking at uh, the iniquity of atheistic regimes, I'm thinking of places like North Korea, um, Soviet Union, godless places. And when I go to places like Scandinavia, this is where my my point about the definition of morality uh, comes into play because the Scandinavians are immoral in a different way than the, than the Soviets were. So uh, you're likely, if, if I went to Scandinavia and said, um, does their godlessness have anything to do with pornography use? Okay, the answer is yes, but I think it would be much, much less likely that this, a Swede would run over and burn down my house. The Soviets would take me out of my house, burn down my house, and send me off to the gulag because I was thinking, uh, you know, thoughts that I ought not to think. So there's, uh, there's oppressive, violent iniquity, but there are also forms of immorality that are not rapacious, that are not violent. Um, Sweden hasn't invaded anybody lately. They're not running concentration camps. But that doesn't mean that there's no uh, immorality there, right? So, so, uh, so this goes you know, back to the question of definition. Your, your initial example about the kind of immorality you're most likely to get in uh, in Sweden, and you brought up use of pornography and said that we can attribute that to their atheism. Again, I think the empirical data doesn't really back that up. The two states in the United States that have the highest rates of porn download are Mississippi and Utah. Uh, so, uh, and I don't think that those are the two states with the highest rate of atheists. Uh, so I, I think that again, whether the uh, the state fair results actually correlate with your prediction, I'm not convinced of. Now we could talk about the Soviet Union uh, and the uh, the atrocities, you know, that were uh, that were committed uh, that were committed under Stalin. 
which are you know are certainly uh, are certainly very real. Uh, but one problem with that is that if the uh, if what we're going to focus on there uh, as the as as the problem is the uh, the fact that uh, that's you know that Stalin's particular ideology wasn't a uh, wasn't a religious ideology that you know that the that the governing party uh, was uh, was atheistic, uh, then you have a problem because uh, you know Nazi Germany committed much worse atrocities, and their governing ideology was uh, was not atheistic. The most evil system that's ever existed in the history of the human race, chattel slavery in the American South, was one that was overseen uh, by people who certainly saw themselves as you know as as Bible uh, you know Bible believing uh, Christians. So. I think that uh, I, I think that this claim that you know, like just even in terms of correlation, I think that this uh, I think that this claim that we could say where there's atheism, uh, then you're going to see you know more atrocities or you know worse morality. I think certainly at least given that fragment of morality that we agree on, I think is going to be pretty dubious. I think that the problem with Stalin's Russia uh, was not the fact that the governing party happened to be atheistic; it was the lack of political democracy and legal institutions that would stop the governing party from doing those things, which is not something that's a product of, uh, of atheism. I mean, if anything, uh, the struggle for democracy globally uh, is something that had to contend against many centuries of Christian theology uh, justifying, you know, absolute, uh, absolute monarchy. But I don't want to spend too long on this, because you mentioned three points, and I think they're all they're all important. So, uh, I mean, I mean, unless you have more you want to say about this, I would like to. Well, let me let me ask you one question about it. One question, sure. and then we can go to back to my three points. And sure. I want to get to your euthypro um, yes, uh, issue also. Um, let's say you and I. Let's say our deathbed friend. Not that you and I would be friends with him, but let's say our deathbed friend was Stalin. And he's yeah. going to die in fifteen. And he's going to die in fifteen minutes. And we're talking to him, and he says to us, "Well, I got away with it." How is he wrong? Uh, he's not wrong that he got away with it. He is wrong if he uh, he thinks that that means uh, that means that it's fine. I think a a really useful uh, you know way to to think about this you know because those seems like there are two very different issues that are being conflated here whether he had a self-interested reason not to do what he did and whether he had a moral reason not to do what he did. In fact, normally we think, why, like, like I think- why did, he have a, why did he have a moral obligation to be a Kantian or a utilitarian? Why can't he be what he was? Why isn't that one of the options? Well, sure, it's uh, to the extent that it's an option uh, it's a, equally an option if you're a theist that there is there's absolutely nothing about theism uh, that uh, that makes that any less of an option. The argument, any argument that I can give for Kantianism, utilitarianism, Rawlsianism, any of those options, any argument I can give against moral nihilism doesn't gain anything if you say, oh, and also God exists. If somebody says, uh, oh, I think God exists. Uh, I think that God has very specific things that he commands me to do, he commands me not to do, uh, but I don't think that that gives me any sort of moral obligation. Uh, I think that maybe it gives me a self-interested reason 
uh, to do these things because God might reward me for doing them or punish me for not doing them, but I don't think it gives them many moral reasons. I'm a nihilist about morality. Then any argument you could give against that would be exactly the same as an argument that an atheist uh, could uh, could uh, could give against. Them. They're just separate questions. Like I, I think a really useful way of seeing that they're separate questions is to think about. Uh, like borrow a thought experiment from Rene Descartes in his meditations a few hundred years ago, where he says, imagine that the world was created and is ruled over not by a, a kind and loving God, uh, but by a wicked and cruel, but all powerful demon. And Descartes was making a point about knowledge, but we could run with it in a slightly different way and say, imagine that this all powerful demon had created all the things that you think that God created, a physical world, a bunch of people to populate it. Uh, and an afterlife, and that the uh, the demon uh, had was going to reward people who tortured and killed innocents uh, by sending them to heaven. He was going to punish uh, people who had maybe you know helped try to save people from being tortured and killed by sending them to hell. Now, certainly in this you know world I'm describing, you would have a self-interested reason uh, to. To torture and kill and all that, but I, I hope we agree that it wouldn't be a moral reason. We wouldn't morally admire people who uh, tortured and killed uh, in order to get on the good side of the all-powerful demon. We wouldn't morally condemn people who... Why not? Uh, well, again, any possible answer to that why not that you could give, I can give. There's nothing that theism adds to it. In fact, I would say we would morally admire people who knew about the demon much more if they were protecting innocents from being tortured and killed, knowing full well that this meant that they were, you know, they were engaged in the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, that they were leaping into the eternal lake of fire. Uh, and and it, again, this seems like if you think that relativism is a problem, if you think that it's bad to think that that morality is just up to, you know, the whims of a person. I don't see why it's it's any better to say that it's up to the whims of a different kind of being, if indeed it is up to okay. their whims. If it's not up to their whims, then we seem to be in the other fork of the Euthyphro dilemma and say that there's something else that makes it good, which is the reason that God commands you to do it. Okay, so I promise, I promise to jump over to the Euthyphro issue in 30 seconds, but I want to make one final point about our friend Stalin. Yeah. So if I'm talking to Stalin on his deathbed, and I'm talking to the Grand Inquisitor on his deathbed, and I step into their respective worlds, I say, Stalin, given your atheism, let's assume your atheism is correct. Well played, man. You got away with it. All right? If your atheism is correct, you pulled it off. If I if I'm on by the deathbed of the Grand Inquisitor and I step into his worldview, there is a God who is ultimate justice. I step into that worldview. What I say to the Grand Inquisitor is, "Boy, boy, are you in trouble, man?" <laughs> okay, sure, but if uh, but let's say the Grand, let's make a third hypothetical that the Grand Inquisitor is right about what God wants. I would say what he's doing okay. is no less morally loathsome because. He happens to be right about what God wants. That would just make God not morally good. That wouldn't make the, the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, okay, okay so this, uh, this, this gets us full tilt into the Euthyphro um, 
thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm there now, happy to talk okay. about it. Awesome. So if, if God commands, if something is only right because God commands it, then you've got the problem of God commanding evil and wickedness and, and so on, which you're describing uh, right there. But if God is commanding things because they're good, then that standard of goodness is outside God, and mm-hmm. he is submitting to it. And that standard of goodness is the word of the true God. There's a God above a God. Uh, in other words, God is answerable to someone or something. If God is answerable to someone up. or something, then he's not God. Well, okay. but, 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 but hold on. Uh, note that the response just assumes that morality must be God commanded, that the only place that morality can come from is being commanded by a God, which is exactly the issue and dispute right now. I mean, it, it just, it just straightforward right. so I to get, question. You anticipated this at the tail end of your comments. I would want to say that God does, um, that righteousness, holiness, goodness is, these are all attributes of God. They're simply descriptive of the way he is. So it's not something that he, he could have created maple trees with pink bark. He could have done something different there, but he couldn't have created a world in which squares were round or in which righteousness was unrighteous because that would violate his own nature and character. God can do anything consistent with his own nature and character. And his own nature and character as a necessary being means that he does not submit to outside authority. He's He's not bound to a standard of good outside of himself, and he can't create a standard of good that's contrary to the way he is. So these things are, and and the other thing is that God is not a contingent being. So uh, he is what he is necessarily. That means God is not just holy. He is necessarily holy. It could not be otherwise. That that means, because Christians uh, confess that God is is an absolute being, not a contingent being. He's absolutely a necessary being. And his attributes of justice and righteousness and kindness and love are eternal, just as he is. All that is in God is God. And so consequently, it's like uh, for, for me to try to imagine Descartes' demoniac God is like trying to imagine a platonic form, uh, a platonic realm of the forms where all the squares were circular. It, it just doesn't work. I can't get my mind around it because oh. God confesses, I am that I am. God is the way he is. And so consequently, morality is simply a reflection of his character. Christians want, Christians want to conform them, themselves to the way God is. So, but the, again, if you say that God can't be other than he is because, you know, because God has eternally had this character and it would be inconsistent for God not to have the character that he has, I don't really see how any of that makes it any harder to imagine uh, a alternate uh, world where, hey, maybe you don't want to call him God anymore because, uh, you know, because at this point, the being that we're imagining, uh, you know, maybe part of the necessary condition for counting as God is that he has that moral character. Fine, call him Schmad, right? So, where Schmad exists, and Schmad is like God in every single way, except that his moral character is different. Instead of being steadfast, he's capricious. Instead of being 
you know, kind, he's cruel. And the question is, uh, would that mean that those, uh, like in that world, uh, would it be the case that cruelty was good because this happened to be the character of the being that created everything? And if not, why doesn't that mean that, uh, that, what, uh, that what counts as a morally good quality, a morally bad quality, a morally good character, a morally bad character uh, is independent of what character God has? Right. I would say that what you're trying to do is you're, you're asking me to visualize as a thought experiment um, something that I can't get my brain around. I can't imagine, if you're saying, imagine a world in which... It's not that hard. Well, no, it's impossible for me. So you're asking me to imagine a world in which all the squares were circular, and I can't do it. Well, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, I mean, hey, Descartes was a believing Christian. He managed it. I think you should try, I I think you should believe in yourself and and, and try indeed to imagine it. I I think you'll be able to imagine it. Uh, there's there's certainly no, there's certainly nothing uh, logically inconsistent about saying that you could have a world that was created and is ruled over uh, by a being whose essential nature is to be no because what, what you're asking me to do you're asking me to do is deny an essential attribute of deity so um, if if you're asking me to uh, defend the Christian God by imagining that he's finite. Well, I mean, but, I, all, all I'm asking you to do, I'm not asking you to revise your view of how God actually is. All I'm asking you to do is presumably what you, you set out to do in your three points, which is to say, uh, accept for the sake of argument, something that you don't believe and see what follows from it. So that's what you're doing when right. you imagine that there is no God, you, you accept my presuppositions yeah. for the sake yeah. of argument. And that's also what you'd be doing uh, if you, imagined uh, this uh, this thought experiment, you know, and, and you said that uh, rather than me being right, that there is neither a kind and loving God nor a cruel omnipotent demon, uh, or you being right, you know, about there being a kind and loving God, I'm just, imag- I'm just asking you to temporarily accept and think about and see what follows from a third possible presupposition, which is that the world was created and is ruled uh, by a all-powerful but cruel and capricious demon, and you, you're telling me that it's impossible, but I'm not really hearing a, a good reason why it is impossible. Okay. I'm not imagining. I will. I will give you this one. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go this far with you. Okay. okay. Um, for the sake of this discussion, and mm-hmm. as the Apostle Paul would say, I'm out of my mind to talk this way. But okay. All right. You've talked sure. me into it. Uh, God is the infinite, all-powerful, um, omnipotent fiend. Okay, if that's the way the universe is, and you take your stand defying this ultimate power, like you've postulated doing, I can say that given that cosmos, that rebellion of yours would be incoherent. How would it be incoherent? You'd have no reason for it. Okay, well, I'd have no self-interested reason for it, but I think ordinarily, we think that moral reasons are deeply and profoundly different than self-interested reasons. Uh, yeah, so but what certain, reason can you point to? What, what again, reason? What would you? You know, what like, would you point? To? Yeah, the, like a moral reason is a reason 
that you're doing something because it's morally right. You're not doing something because you're morally wrong. So Kant, for example, would say that an action has moral worth precisely to the extent that it is not motivated uh, by self-interest. Now he thinks it has to be motivated and by the scene, respect and for the, the scene God would say, say. What do you, uh, you know, the I would God would say to you, I'd say that we why are you have, listening to Kant? I killed him. Uh, well, I think that I, I, that I, that I would say that, 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 uh, that as powerful as this demon is, he, uh, uh, that he's, he's not a very clear thinker uh, because he's, uh, he's <laughs> confusing two different issues. The demon is asking me what self-interested reason that I have. I'm talking about moral reasons, and moral reasons begin precisely where self-interested uh, you know, reasons end. You know, that's why, like Plato in the Republic, you know, he's asking people to consider, to figure out what they really think is morally just, to imagine a ring of invisibility so you could do whatever you wanted and get away with it. He says, what would you not do because you think it's morally wrong? What he's trying to do is he's trying to separate out the issue of uh, of what you're going to be uh, so morally rewarded. My question is morally for. wrong. Morally wrong by what standard? By what standard? Morally, morally wrong by the uh, by the standards of objectively correct morality, which again, I, you know, I think there are arguments for all of the options that I've given for objectively correct morality. Now, if you don't find any of those arguments convincing, if you say no, I think that uh, I think that all of those options are wrong. I think that maybe there's a deep philosophical problem with making sense of the very thought of objective morality, then all I would say to you is okay, but if that's true, if there is this big problem with how to make sense of the idea of morality being objective, adding on, well, God exists to your set of assumptions is going to do exactly nothing to alleviate that problem. Why not? Well, uh, we uh, we talked about the uh, the Euthyphro objection earlier, but the point, uh, but really, I think that if you're going to say that it does something, the uh, the burden of proof is on you. And all you've told me, right, with all this business about Stalin on his deathbed and all that stuff, is about uh, that not doing what God says is going to go badly for you, which. You know, look, I'm an atheist. I believe that not doing what Stalin said in Stalin's Russia was going to go badly for you. That doesn't mean that I don't uh, admire, you know, Trotsky and other dissidents. You know, that that doesn't uh, uh, that right. doesn't mean uh, that uh, that that I do admire people who who went, you know went along to uh, to get along. And similarly, I'd say on the cosmic scale. So all you've given me is a reason to think. That it would be if you that if you, if God exists, it would be in your interest to agree with God about no, morality. That, but that's a completely no. That's just my third from an argument I, for God's beliefs about morality being objectively correct. I I do agree with you that I argued that motivation matters, and I do agree that self-interest. Jesus said to fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. So it's not wrong to to take self-interest into account. But that was my third point. My second point has to do with the rationale. When you, when you say things like it's objectively immoral to obey this ultimate demoniac God, it's objectively immoral 
to um, to obey the the demon who created all things. Mm. My question to you is why? By right. what standard is it immoral? And again, I've given you the answer to that several times. They have a so I think here are your options that you can think any of these moral theories, if any of them is right, then you know that demon god, Stalin, the Grand Inquisitor are objectively wrong because they're violated. If you don't think any of them are right and you're worried that moral nihilism is true, you haven't given me a single reason to think that theism is going to be the basis of any sort of anti-nihilistic argument. You've just pointed to the existence of a philosophical problem and asserted that in some way or another that we have yet to hear, theism is going to help solve that problem. Now you're, you're introducing God into the system as though he's simply a big character in the play. Instead of the ground of all being, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Because when you introduce God, the necessary absolute, and into the equation, then nihilism is out. Why? Uh, because God says it's out. Okay, well, I mean, that might be a good reason that it wouldn't be in your interest to be a nihilist, but you haven't explained why that means that it would actually be objectively incorrect to be a nihilist. You've said God is the ground of all being. If that includes God being the ground of all morality, then this is just a different way of saying well, no. divine command ethics is true. Uh, so if God exists, we can make sense of divine command ethics being true. And that's the right answer uh, to, uh, to the question of what's objectively morally good. No, but because I could pose all the same questions about that you were posing for utilitarianism and Kantianism and all those other options. I could say, well, wait a second. Why morally, again, if we're, if we're talking about what's actually true as opposed to uh, talking about what it's in your interest to believe, you know, if you know what's good for you, and if we're talking about what's actually true, I should say, okay, let's assume that God exists. Why is doing what he says is what's morally right the right answer and utilitarianism and Kantianism and all of these because other things? Because this is my third point. And you have to my three points. My, my three points were the existence of the Christian God provides us with, with the definition of morality. The second is it provides But I want to linger on that first point because nothing about the existence of a Christian God logically entails that divine command ethics is right and utilitarianism and Kantianism and the rest of those are wrong. It could be <laughs> that the Christian God exists and, of course, God being all-knowing, knows all of the moral truths, and, you know, maybe even a good way of discovering the moral truths is to, you know, is to read God's word or ask for God's guidance. But what those moral truths were are moral truths that are defined uh, by the categorical imperative or defined by... No, 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 no. Well, 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 no. You haven't given me any reason to. to think that's not true, except the one, the one time when you seem to be giving me a reason to think that it wasn't true uh, was when you said, well... If God uh, is, uh, if God in his belief that certain things are morally right and morally wrong is believing in moral facts that aren't defined by him, that means that he's submitting to someone or something outside of himself. But, but I, that we, argument is questioned. I do want to return, to, do want to, return to Doug in just a second ethics. so that he has plenty of time to respond as well, just because I think that he was on the verge, he was starting to make a point and then... Um, you we, jumped in and so we're about out of time, James. We're close. Um, 
for the Q&A to fit in as well, what I want to do is maybe give Doug a chance to respond and then pretty quick, I, I pardon my interruption there, Ben, but just sure. because I do want to respect your guys' time. Okay. okay. So basically coming to the first point, the, the Christian position is that God's nature and character by definition, by definition is everything. It's not, the universe is not a, a place where God fits in. The universe is created, spoken into existence by him. He's not only the source of all our physical being, he is also the word. He is the, he is the source and ground of bedrock of every definition. So when we define what, what righteousness is, basically what God says, given the fact that it's, if it's the Christian God exists, then by definition, his will, his character, his nature defines the pattern of what is right and holy and and so consequently it, it's not possible to imagine the christian god where someone has the right to dissent from that that definition okay uh i'll i'll leave it to the judgment of viewers whether that uh that answers uh my challenge about what All it right. is conceptually that makes uh, the existence of a all-powerful God who created the universe incompatible with some uh, moral theory other than divine command theory being true, uh, or whether any of that challenges the Euthyphro objection to divine command theory. Yeah, divine commands are not whims. Divine commands proceed from who he is. Well, the only way for divine commands not to be whims uh, is if they're made morally correct by some moral standard that is independent of the will of God, just saying that, well, given God's nature, he could only do this. Okay, well, given a cruel and capricious nature, uh, if you're a necessary being, you could only act cruelly and capriciously. Uh, but I think we would still say of a universe with a cruel and capricious God that what that God wanted wasn't morally no. good. So, so, so no, you only say that. You only say that because you're talking. That God's commands are what matters. To say that God's nature is what matters looks like it's responsive to the challenge, but it just recreates it one level back. No, you're you're having to live in Descartes' demented universe, and your valiant resistance of the demoniac God in that universe. You're having to borrow moral capital from this universe in order to justify your stand. Because well, if you, no. uh, just like fish, fish don't know they're wet. If you lived in that, if you lived in that universe, you would have no basis for resisting that. But you're switching uh, topics, because we were talking about moral metaphysics. What is it that makes something morally good or morally bad? What you're talking about is moral epistemology, how we know whether something is morally good or morally bad. Now. I could yeah. grant you that it could very well be that in the demon-ruled universe, uh, the demon wouldn't, you know, wouldn't grant us the knowledge of what was morally good and bad, you know, that, that he might, I mean, this was Descartes' original point about the demon, you know, that he's introduced to be a source of, of uh, ways that we could be wrong about everything. The demon is tricking us, but that's a completely separate question from whether things actually are uh, morally good or morally bad. And I haven't yet gotten a reason to think that the right theory of what makes something morally good or morally bad is divine command ethics rather than Kantianism, Rawlsianism, utilitarianism, any of these other options. A range of philosophers 
that you get to pick from is not the standard. Well, no, but I'm saying it's not a two- they have it, that, that if any one of those, op- if any one of them are correct, if you accept, if, if any one of those theories is the correct theory, then, you know, if utilitarianism is the correct theory, then something being morally, uh, something maximizing well-being and minimizing suffering is what makes it objectively correct, even if no one what, thinks so, even if God doesn't think so, and God exists. What if they're all... But, but, but if you think, what if, they're all that, if, you, if, if you're not convinced by any of the arguments for any of these views, if you think that there is this big problem about how to make sense of morality being anything but a matter of preference, my point is that adding theism into the mix, uh, and this is not simply a matter, you know, I think none of these metaphors about whether God is like a character to play or God is the ground of all things, adding the assumption that God is the ground of all things into the mix doesn't actually add up to a reason to think that divine command ethics is the right theory of morality. If you want to do that, you still have to make that argument. So just pointing to, oh, there's this philosophical problem about how to make sense of objective morality. Now, I'm not necessarily convinced that is a huge problem, but let's say for the sake of argument that it is, adding theism doesn't make that problem any more tractable. James, how much time do we have left? This is a good time to jump into the Q&A if you guys are ready for it. I do love the conversation. It's been really fun, but just because we want to get your, basically we want to respect your guys' time, I want to jump into these. And so we have our first one coming in from Lab Lover Chris says, Ben, how do you know on an atheist worldview that morality is real versus an illusion, e.g. moral nihilism, and is it the same way that theists know God exists? Yeah, so uh, I think that um, the ways that you could know, again, the question, if the question is, what's the right argument for moral realism? You know, why is it that, you know, why should we think that there are objective moral facts? Then there are certainly arguments for that that you can make within, you know, the assumption of, of atheism. There are arguments that you can make that those aren't convincing. But I think the larger point that we want to keep our eyes on is that adding the premise that theism is true is going to do absolutely nothing to help defeat you know moral nihilism the same way that if if you think that um that if uh if we uh, if we lived in that world that was ruled by an all-powerful demon doing what that demon command that wouldn't make doing what the demon commanded morally good uh, then you should be able to say, see why just postulating the existence of a God who has certain ideas about morality is not enough to show that those ideas are correct. It might be enough to show that uh, that if you know where, what's, which side your bread is buttered on, you'll do what God says, uh, but that's a completely different question from why nihilism is morally wrong, and theism is just not going to help with that. Gotcha. Next one. Do we, do we both respond to these questions? I think so far we can give you guys a, a couple of those kind of quick rebuttals because we don't have too many questions yet. All right. So I would I would quickly say that uh, uh, Ben keeps talking about bringing God in, not fixing the problem. Uh, but God is not a condiment or an add-on extra or something you bring in at the tail end. Uh, God is an absolute being. And so consequently, 
you don't reason your way to God. Let's let's figure all the morality stuff out and then bring God in and see what happens. I I would say that without God, I can't make higher. I I can't make sense out of anything, right? I can't. I don't know which way to go. I don't have any standard to follow. Every everything is topsy turvy. So I begin with the assumption of an absolute being and his nature is fixed and unchangeable. And so consequently, I don't want to switch out, you know, suppose, suppose we had a manic depressive God, suppose we had a bipolar God, suppose we had a God who alternated, you know, um, basically those to me are nonsensical questions because God is the, I am that I am. So we start with him. And when we start with him, we find that he does not just provide us with physical existence. His son is the word, the logos. That means he brings definition. Everything that, everything that God uh, sustains and created occupies a space within him. Or it, it, it operates within his universe. We are his creatures. And so consequently, we reckon with him. We don't add him, we don't add him in trying to flavor our universe to taste. But the, you know, but you could just substitute for the phrase. I'll give phrase, you a quick response, add, Ben. Just because okay, you the, could uh, just substitute for the phrase "adding God in," making the presupposition that, and then fill in everything that Pastor Douglas just said, and the challenge, uh, the challenge would still stand. And I'd also just very quickly point out that there is a bit of a dilemma for him here because he can't really have it both ways. He can't say that he is capable of entering in to, for the sake of argument, to the presupposition that there's no God at all uh, and seeing what follows, but he's not capable of entering into the presupposition that instead of the world being created uh, by an eternal and, uh, and unch- you know, by a kind and loving God with an eternal unchanging nature, uh, the world was created by uh, a, uh, by, by a cruel and wicked God, a cruel and wicked being. We don't have to call him God with an unchanging nature. If you can enter into one presupposition, you should be able to enter into both. And the fact that one of them would be a profound you know, deviation from his worldview, if that's a good enough reason that he can't enter into one, it should be a good enough reason to say that he can't enter into two. And if he can't enter into either one, then all of his challenges to atheism tonight just trivially fall by the wayside. Next, I hate to do this, but just because we have a number of questions we want to get through, Skillmaster asks, this is for you, Pastor Doug, said, not believing in a God doesn't mean there, and so some of these are comments too because they're super chat, so they said, not believing in a God doesn't mean there is no morality there. Does believing in God give me automatically good moral judgment? No. no. Uh, um, so there are, a lot, there are a lot of people who believe there, that there is a God, the book of James says the devil believes that there's a God and the devil does not have good moral judgment. So there are all sorts of people who are theists. There are people who are professing Christians who are very foolish and sinful and wicked. And so uh, it's not something that automatically comes with a mental assent to the, to the fact of God's existence. I believe that if someone is truly regenerated, if they're converted to God, if they're given a heart change, I believe that makes a difference in their life, but I don't believe that simple mental assent does that. You bet. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from, I want to make sure I read this right. Paul Crick says, I, if I were to enjoy stoning 
an adulterer, would I be moral in doing so? I think that's for you, Pastor Doug. Well, if you were to enjoy that, <laughs> then I would say you need to seek counsel. You got it. Get some counseling. And they also had asked, if Stalin found Jesus and sincerely was repentant for his sins, would he be forgiven by God? Yeah, if anybody who repents, anyone who repents and calls on the name of the Lord would be forgiven. Yes. You got it. Thank you very much. Even, even moral monsters. Thank you very much. And Oliver Catwell, appreciate your question, said, in the demon ruler analogy for Ben, if quote-unquote evil acts are rewarded or beneficial, wouldn't humans evolve to know evil as good instead, making the demon benevolent? Well, I think there's a, there's a logical slippage at the end of the question. Uh, so would people believe that torturing and killing innocents was good? Sure. Uh, but that's a completely different question from whether evil was benevolent. You know, this is, uh, you know, so uh, in a debate about a very similar topic, um, you know, with, uh, I borrowed this in my opening statement, actually, between, uh, you know, William Lane Craig and uh, Shelley Kagan, uh, Craig um, brought up this idea that, well, okay, if there's not God to define morality, then if the Nazis had won World War II uh, and just killed everybody who objected to their actions and brainwashed everybody who's left to uh uh to to think that what they did was morally right uh then if you know some sort of cultural relativism i guess is right then what the nazis were doing is right and of course i agree that's absurd but for exactly the same reason i think that divine command ethics is absurd because it makes morality relative to the will or if you prefer the character uh, of one being, and I'd say that what any being, human or otherwise, thinks is morally wrong is just a separate question from what's morally wrong. Gotcha. And this one, coming in from Negation of P, appreciate it, said, Pastor Doug, Joseph Stalin has a deathbed conversion to Christianity. Alan Turing does not. Stalin, quote, gets away with it and gains eternal reward, while Turing would be tortured for all of eternity is this correct yes you got it and chris gammon thanks for your question said i treat others the way i would want to be treated that's what i would do whether i had ever heard of any god or not what are your thoughts both pastor doug and ben i would say that's a fine statement of the golden rule and you like to you'd like to think that maybe you you could come up with that all by yourself, but but Jesus taught it, and uh, it's been in our culture for centuries. And I believe that we have to ask by what standard, treat others as you would be treated, makes a whole lot of sense to us. But I I want to argue it makes sense to us for a reason. We're created in the image of God. He gave us a sense of morality. It's not uh, it's it's inbred. We have an understanding of natural law, and it's revealed to us in Scripture. We can't say that independent of all that stuff, I would like to think that I would be a good and decent person, because I would say, by what standard? If you're the standard, you can alter it at will. If you're not the standard, then I have to ask, where did you get it? So if, if the standard comes from outside, 
Where did you get it? If it arises from within, why can't you change it? Well, so I, I think there were three different things going on in that answer. The first one was the claim that we believe in the golden rule because it was taught by Jesus, uh, which is uh, clearly falsified by a quick uh, tour through uh, through world history. Uh, that you know, they certainly uh, in the the same time, you know, approximately the same time and place, but a bit earlier uh, in the Babylonian Talmud. You know, Rabbi Hillel. Uh, gives a uh, gives a version of the uh, of the golden rule that's before Jesus. Uh, Confucius gives a version of the golden rule that's way before Jesus. Uh, so, uh, so I, I no, think it's Confucius says, "Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you." And as C.S. Lewis points out in *Abolition of Man*, Jesus um, contributes a great advance: do to others what you would have them do to you. Um, but ever, but I grant the fact that I said I referred to natural law. And yeah, so that was your second answer, which I agree is much better than your first answer, because the first answer, again, you have certainly very golden rule-like statements long before Jesus, uh, and certainly broadening our, our horizon behind, beyond the yeah. golden rule uh, in every human culture that's ever existed. So right? I grant that. Whether I, I grant were, that, yes. You know, Christians or atheists or pantheists or polytheists or animists, everybody uh, had, you know, made moral claims, uh, quite a few of which, not all of which, but quite a few of which uh, would line up with the, uh, the fragment that Pastor Douglas and I uh, agree on. So I think that the natural law claim is better uh, that they have a, that it's not a matter of a cultural inheritance from Christianity. It's, uh, it's a matter of what's inscribed in the human heart, uh, on your view, by God, sure. Uh, but then I think the question, again, is, are you going to separate the question of what humans believe is morally right from the question of what is morally right? So, and again, this, this is where, sure, if you had uh, that, you know, that demon-ruled universe, uh, then, uh, then perhaps the, you know, the demon would use his power uh, to make sure that nobody held, uh, you know, nobody believed in the golden rule or the categorical imperative or anything like that. But I would say that that's as as irrelevant to the moral question as the Nazis winning World War II and killing everybody who objected to their actions is to but the you, question. But then what you're doing, what they were doing is wrong. What you're doing is you're standing in a bucket and carrying yourself upstairs with it. You can't do this. What you're doing is you're saying, I am going to point to the fact that there is an objective morality that arises from nowhere, that comes from nowhere, and I'm going to postulate it, that it's there, even though the one who created everything disagrees with it. So they have a... Uh, Where are you... But, well, again, though, I have... Uh, what you, who, who died and left you king? <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't actually think I'm, I'm a king, which is why I think that to figure out what's morally right and wrong... We have to reason together about it, which is what I'm trying to do here. Uh, which I think, uh, which I think, by the way, is a uh, is a much better idea than uh, than deriving morality from a fundamentalist interpretation of Christianity. Because if you want to look at the history of state fair winners, uh, that's 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 where you know that's where you get some of the worst of them. Uh, but you're helping yourself in this bucket analogy to the assumption that somehow or another 
making the presupposition of theism rather than this presupposition of atheism helps make sense of objective morality. And we have yet to hear an explanation of how that works. You told us that God's ideas about what's moral or immoral uh, are essential and unchanging and part of his nature. If true, flatly irrelevant to the question. You've told us uh, that uh, people that, you know, that the Grand Inquisitor would have a reason, would have a self-interested reason uh, to, uh, to wish that he'd done otherwise because he was about to be punished, which again, if true, is just irrelevant to the philosophical question of what makes something more objectively morally true. And yeah. if you think that's a big problem, then all your work is still ahead of you when you say, well, theism is true. Okay, fill, you know, fill in the spaces here. How do we get from theism is true to God's nature is objectively morally good? This one coming in from, appreciate your question. It's from Tom's chair who asks, if God can say that killing babies is morally uh, permissible or required, then is that God's standard flawed? Is that the last part? Is that God's standard flawed? Correct. Are they, is that a question for me? Yes, I think so. Okay, and I, I assume it's referring to the Canaanite, um, you know, when God commanded the Israelites to go in and slaughter everybody. I think so. So all, all that is, is, is uh, I re reframe the question. Can God be pro-choice? Apparently, yes. So, sorry, was was that addressed to, to, to me or James or just... just no, the, no, no. I was, I was answering the question. If God, the Lord gives life, the Lord takes life. He's, he is the one who has authority over that. So, consequently, when someone dies of a heart attack, God's not guilty of murder. You know, he's simply taking back what he gave in the first place. So uh, God's command to exterminate the Canaanites was holy, righteous, and good. Well, that's, uh, I mean, I, I think that I think that once you've reached the point in an argument where uh, somebody is justifying genocide, uh, then that's not, you know, maybe it's a coincidence uh, that they, they hold that position. And that they uh, and that they you know they could also independently have the right idea about what you know the objective foundations of morality, but it's certainly not a good it's certainly not a good sign. We must well, move here. Go ahead. We must move to the next question. This one coming from Samuel Lilholm. and folks, we uh, will not get to all the questions, so just want to give you a heads up that anything that we've gotten in so far, uh, any new submissions, we won't be able to read for sure, just because we have limited time. But Samuel asks. If design is undeniable, and if design equals morality, and in parentheses, crooked and straight lines slash harm and health, wouldn't atheism be inherently immoral because they deny said design? And then they say de denying truth is inherently immoral, question mark? Oh, I mean, this, this, was, the, this was one of the first things. That's for you, Ben. He wasn't going to. Uh, that he, he actually wasn't going to claim. But he's, he sort of said it'd be trivially true, but he, he'd be question begging to, to say it, right? I mean, am I missing something? Is this question for me? Um, that was a question for you, I thought. 
Yes, it definitely. You're right. It is for you, Ben. I'm frankly, I'm still piecing together the question. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure I understand the question because it sounded like what he was asking about was uh, one of the first things that Pastor Douglas said in his opening statement, which is, okay, given that I'm a theist, I think that there's a sense in which atheism is immoral because the atheist is saying something false. Uh, but I'm not going to press that argument because that would just be sort of question begging in a silly way in this context. And of course, and I guess I would just, um, you know, help myself to uh, to his point here if it is addressed to me and say that, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, if uh, uh, if theism was true and I I and I knew it was true and I was denying it, that I'd be really saying something false, and that might be morally wrong. But then you could say exactly the same thing in the other direction that if atheism is true and Pastor Douglas knew it was true and he was still saying that it was false, that he would be knowingly saying something that was false. So, I mean, you could play that game in both directions, but I don't really see what it's supposed to prove. You got it. And this one come, this one comes in from Ask Yourself. Last one we've got here. And they asked, or I should say Isaac asked, Doug said that the evil God world is impossible, like a squared circle. To avoid Ben's question, what's the contradiction in an evil God idea? Make sure it's a formal. Uh, I can't understand the abbreviation, uh, but so I, I, that's the question, though. And the, the rest of what they said, I couldn't understand. But I guess they're saying, is an evil God a contradiction? In what way would it be a contradiction akin to squared circles for Pastor Dog? Okay. So th this goes back to the point I've tried to make a number of times. God's existence is necessary. He's not a contingent being. If God exists, he exists necessarily. God didn't happen one day. It wasn't like there was nothing, and then one, and all of a sudden there was God, and then he made the world. God exists necessarily from everlasting to everlasting. He inhabits eternity. He identifies himself as I am that I am. So God's self-existence, his aseity, his immutability, his um, are all characteristics of his unchangeable nature. So if you are, a, if you, if you're starting from that, there's no way to get a contender, a, a contender evil God in there. He can't, be, he can't, can't be toppled. And you, and you don't start with a vacuum and then decide what kind of God are we going to put in there. Uh, ben is exactly right, is that you can, for purposes, imagine the world that your opponent is talking about and run a reductio and say, here's what I think happens there. All right? you, can, you can imagine it that way. I can't, I can't imagine uh, an evil God, as I told Ben, I can't get my mind around that. And to, to an earlier point that I wanted to say, where Ben made a fair point, I honestly can't get my mind atheism either. So the absence of a God is just as difficult for me as a malevolent God. I, I, I can't imagine it, but I can put that concept as a placeholder in an argument and run it out, but I can't really understand it. I can't really get, I can't really grasp it. But I, I, I guess what I don't understand is if you can put that into placeholder in an argument that, you know, because, yeah, if God exists necessarily, which, um, which by the way, 
Um, you know, this is a, there's a classic argument for this, the ontological argument. Uh, I don't think it's a very good argument, but we can have that discussion another time, perhaps. But if God exists necessarily, uh, and also has the nature that he has necessarily, if both of those things are true, then to the extent that that would make uh, a God that had a different nature, like a square circle, it would also make no God like a square circle. Because you're saying, what if something yeah. that exists necessarily did Actually, exist? I agree with that. I agree with that. So if I, you, I, I do. Okay, good. So if you could still that. say, okay, let's assume that this square circle exists. Now here are all these unsavory consequences of atheism. Then it seems to me that you should be able to answer questions about if this other square circle, the world being created by, by a eternally and necessarily existing cruel being existed, uh, would it be the case that that being's commandments were morally good? Uh, I, I don't really see what the disanalogy is supposed Here, to be. Here's how, ben, here's how it works. I can't imagine square circles. I couldn't go to the, to the board and draw one. I can't get my mind around square circles. But I can, I can run a reductio on that. If someone said, imagine a world of square circles, I would say, well, I can't imagine it really, but I can tell you this. If the world had square circles in it, geometry is shot. No more geometry. I can't say that, right? So but, I but, can't, but if you say no more geometry, that means that you can, in fact, reason about what would be true in this world. And if yeah. you can do that for atheism, you should be able to do that uh, for the world created by an all-powerful demon, oh, and, and you're going to face I, that higher-order Euthyphro problem, would that that all-powerful demon's uh, character therefore be morally good? So, uh, let me just throw one quick thing in, I hope it's quick, about the ontological argument. I don't believe the ontolog ontological argument proves the existence of God, but I do believe the existence of God proves the ontological argument. You got it. Thank you, guys. Want to say, folks, our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more, it doesn't have to stop. You can click on their links below, which are in the top of the description. And if you enjoy this debate, hit that thumbs up. We appreciate it. I know I sure did. Thank you very much, Pastor Doug and Ben. This has been a true pleasure to have you guys. We really appreciate you spending your time with us this afternoon. Thanks, James. Thanks very much. Ben, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Douglas. Absolutely. And so what we're going to do, folks, is I'll be right back with a post credit scene where I'll just let you know about some of the upcoming debates. And with that, we'll say keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable, folks. I'll be back in just a moment. And once again, huge thank you to our guests. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP SmartSide today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.